I would invite you to open with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15 tonight. We have in our Bibles four Gospels, four accounts of the life of Jesus and also his death, burial, and resurrection. And tonight I want to look at the sayings of Jesus that he uttered upon the cross, the, the words that he spoke while he was there. Jesus, of course, is the most important person who ever lived. His, his death is the reason why he came. It's, it's the most important thing that he did, the most important thing by the most important person. And as he hangs on the cross, he, he says seven things, seven words, seven statements from the cross, seven last and parting words, if you will. And so I want, I want to look at those tonight, those seven words, those seven statements by the most important man in the most important moment of his life. But before we, we look at those, we're going to have to draw from all four Gospels to, to see those seven statements, not any one of the Gospels contains all seven of them. But I do want to read the, the account from one of the Gospels, and so we're going to look at Mark chapter 15 this evening. Mark chapter 15, verse 1, it says, As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. You'll recall that Jesus had been arrested the, the evening before, he had been put on trial by the Sanhedrin, and so now they're going to, the, the Jewish council, so now they're going to take him away to Pilate. And it says, they bound Jesus and led him and delivered him over to Pilate, who was the Roman governor there in Jerusalem. And Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused Jesus of many things. And Pilate asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, that's the feast of Passover, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in an insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowds to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. 
And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, that's about 600 soldiers, and they clothed Jesus in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription on the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And one who passed by derided him. And those who passed by derided, that's mocked him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy and rebuild the temple in three days... Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, leme sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the passers-by hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that it was this way, When he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and of Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and ministered to him. There were also many other women who came up with them to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was himself also looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus had died already, and summoning the centurion, 
He asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have these accounts. They're the eyewitness accounts. They, they, they tell the story of what they saw from their own perspective. Each perspective a little bit different. Just as all of you, if you had witnessed any one event and, and wrote it down, Though you would be describing the same event, you would be describing it from your angle and your perspective. And so each one of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give us a, a unique retelling of Christ upon the cross. And, and when you read each one of them, what you see is that while Jesus was on the cross, there were seven things that he said. Seven statements, seven words, seven last words of Jesus on the cross. And I want to look at them tonight and see what they tell us about the work that he was accomplishing for us as he hung there. The first two we'll see from Luke chapter 23, and the first one is this. The first thing that Jesus says while he hangs upon the cross after being nailed there is this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In this statement, we see the mercy and the forgiveness of Christ. Though the crowds are mocking him, though the crowds have demanded his life, though the centurions have beat him, have spit upon him, have placed the crown of thorns upon his head, have scourged him, Jesus, as he is nailed to the cross and, and hung there, he begins to pray and intercede, not for himself, but for the very souls of those who have put him there. The mercy and the forgiveness of Christ. There has never been a more merciful or forgiving person who has ever lived than the person of Jesus Christ. What this shows us as, as Jesus prays for the very ones who put him on the cross, as he prays for the very ones who drove the nails into his hands, it shows us that even us, even though we have likewise sinned against God, that there is forgiveness in Christ. There is forgiveness in Christ, you may think that what you have done is too sinful, too shameful, too evil, that, that God could never love you, that God could never forgive you, that, that because of your past that you have no future, but there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. If, if Jesus is willing to forgive those who put him on the cross, He's willing to forgive you of your sin as well. What mercy, what love, what grace. Where else have you ever seen a display of love, mercy, and grace and forgiveness like that? It's only found in Christ. Christ. 
And as Christ hangs on the cross, praying for those who put him there, his arms outstretched, he himself beckons you to himself. And the truth is that we all need the forgiveness that he offers. Though we may not have personally driven the nails into Jesus' hands, as we sang about tonight, it was our sin that put him there. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins. He died for our sins. It wasn't the Jewish council that put him there. It wasn't the crowds that put him there. It wasn't Pilate and the Roman government that put him there. It wasn't the centurions that put him there. It was you and it was I through our sin. Christ died for our sins. Now, this is not a popular thing to say today. This is not popular. It's not politically correct to call anybody wrong out on anything. The virtue of our day is the virtue of tolerance, that we accept everybody for everything, no matter how evil, no matter how wicked, no matter how depraved, no matter how sinful. But the cross shows us our need for forgiveness. Our, the cross shows us that we have all sinned. And we have all sinned. Not a one in us, in us, of us in here tonight has never sinned. We have all transgressed God's law. We have all rebelled against God. We have all broken his commandments. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And not only have we all sinned, but the truly tragic part is that the wages of sin is death. The payment, the penalty for transgressing God's law, God, the author and giver of life, God who created us in his image, God who gave us our lives. And we have used our lives that he has given us to rebel against him and to cut ourselves off from him, the author and the giver of life, the wages for sin, the penalty for sin, for transgressing God's law is death. God who is holy, God who is morally perfect, God who is eternally just, cannot overlook sin, cannot turn a blind eye to sin. God is just, God is holy. So there must be a price paid for sin. Jesus died to pay the price for our sin. Jesus died so that we might have forgiveness of sin. The second thing that Jesus utters from the cross is to the thief that's hanging there with him. And that is this. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We see as we read the gospel accounts that there were two thieves, one on either side. Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, prophesied, predicted that he would die with the wicked, that he would die among transgressors. And Jesus there hangs between two thieves, two men who earned their punishment, who earned their penalty. 
And they begin to mock him. They begin to say to him, hey, why, not, why don't you call out to somebody? You know, you're some, supposedly you're the Messiah, supposedly the Son of God. They join in with the chorus. But as the, the evening continues, as the night wears on, as Jesus, the, there's something that happens that, that, that one of the thieves sees in Jesus something unique, sees in Jesus something different. And one of the thieves begins to argue with the other one and say, hey, wait a second. We deserve to be here. We earned this punishment. But he did nothing wrong. He, he, he did nothing wrong. He doesn't deserve to be here. And then he looks to Jesus and he says this to Jesus. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now think about this. Think, think about the implications of what he's saying. There's no getting down off of that cross. They're all going to die. Yet one thief looks to Jesus and says, one day I know that you will inherit a kingdom. And he looks to Jesus and he says, remember me when you receive your kingdom. Something he saw, something in that moment, he, he saw something in Jesus and he put his faith in Christ there on the cross. And Jesus turns to him and says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This statement teaches us about the redemption of Christ. The redemption of Christ that thief had, had ruined his life. That thief represents a life ruined because of sin, a life ruined, rebelling against God, a, a life that, that had so much promise, so much opportunity. Every one of us has a, has, a, has a blank slate in front of us when we live our lives, and, and that thief had lived a, lived a life that led him to a death on a cross. It represents a ruined life. But there is redemption in Christ. There is redemption for those who have ruined their life. Christ has the power to redeem your life. You may think you have ruined your life. You may think that your life is over. Not with Christ. Not with Christ. Have faith in Christ. That thief was saved that day. That thief, when he died, was ushered into the presence of God, into paradise, as Jesus said. Though that thief ruined his life here on earth, he had put his faith in Christ, the one who redeems. Now, some of you may have come here tonight with that plan, with the thief's plan. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life. And at the very end, I'll trust in Christ. At the last moment, I'll, I'll give my life to him and I'll be ushered into paradise. That's my plan. I'm with the thief. I'm on the thief plan. <laughs> Let me tell you, friend, that's not a good plan. The Bible says this life is like a vapor. It is here today and it is gone tomorrow. 
Most of us will not be given a warning for when we pass from this life to the next. We don't know when it will be. It could be tonight. We live in a very fallen and broken world. Will all kinds of bad things happen all the time? We cannot put our hope in tomorrow because the Bible says none of us is promised tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Today is when we must put our faith in Christ. Today is when we must turn from sin and embrace Christ and let him redeem our lives today so that we no longer have to go on wasting our life that he gave us, but we can live a life of redemption for the King of kings and Lord of lords. None of us, not a one of us, want to stand before God with the broken heart that we wasted our lives. None of us wants that. Listen, God created you. He made you. He formed you. He fashioned you in your mother's womb. He's gifted you with unique talents, unique abilities. He's placed you in a unique situation with with people that only you can reach for him. Don't waste your life. Don't don't waste your life. Don't fritter it away on meaningless and worthless pursuits, things that have no consequence, have no eternal value. We want to be like like the servant who was entrusted with the the, the talents, with with the the offering that the Lord entrusted to him and that took it and multiplied it. And so when the master came looking, he said, look at what I've done. We don't want to be like that, what Jesus called the wicked servant who buried it in the sand, who wasted it. Jesus can redeem the wasted life. Jesus can restore the wasted years. Turn to Christ. Number three, we see this from John's gospel, John chapter 19. Jesus speaking to his mother Mary and then uh, his, his closest disciple John. To Mary, he says, woman, behold your son, pointing, or not pointing, but directing her towards John. And, and John, to John, he, he, he says, behold your mother, directing him to Mary. Woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. In this moment, as Jesus is, is dying on the cross, we see him expressing this love and this care and this compassion. He, he's not thinking about himself. He's not thinking about his own pain, his own suffering. But he looks and he sees his mother. He looks and sees his closest disciple, John. He says, John, I want you to take care of my mother. We see that, that obviously Mary is distraught from the very beginning when she took Jesus to dedicate him at the temple. There was a prophecy over her that, that a sword would pierce her own soul. And here she is in that moment and, and no doubt those words are ringing in her ears. The, the broken heart of a mother watching her son crucified. And Jesus sees the suffering of his mother and his mother's broken heart and he's concerned for her. 
And before he dies, he makes sure that she is going to be taken care of, that she is going to be cared for. And in the same way, Christ sees our needs. The love, the care, the compassion of Christ, he sees our needs. He sees our suffering and he is moved by our suffering. The one who himself suffered is not indifferent to our pain. Sometimes when we go through things in life, when we are, when we are suffering, when we are in pain, sometimes we wonder, does anybody see? Sometimes we wonder, does anybody care? Does anybody recognize the, the hurt, how much I'm hurting, how much I'm in pain? And let me assure you tonight of this, Christ sees. Christ knows. And he is touched, the Bible says, he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And he is near, the Bible says, to the brokenhearted. It's the lie of the enemy that says you're all alone. It's the lie of the enemy that says nobody sees. It's the lie of the enemy that says nobody cares. Listen, the devil is a liar. Christ sees. No one else may see, but he sees. No one else may care, but he cares. And if we have Christ, we have everything. He is near to the brokenhearted. We see this in the care he has for his mother. And so if you are suffering, if you are in pain, if you are going through a test, a, a trial, look to Christ in your suffering. Look to Christ and be healed. Look to Christ and find healing for your soul. That's the only place you'll find healing. I can't heal you. Nobody else can heal you. Look unto Christ. He sees, and he is the one who heals. Number four, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this statement, we see the, the full extent of the work of Christ, the work that he came to accomplish. We see the pain of the cross. Yes, of course, the, the crucifixion, excruciating physical pain. We see his, his suffering as he is nailed, as he has been scourged, the crown of thorns. We, we see the, the pain of Christ. We see his despair. But in this moment, there is something more that is happening than the physical pain of the cross. There is something more that happens as Jesus dies there than simply physical pain and torment. There is a spiritual pain that came from bearing the sin of the world.
And we, we know something of this. We know something of the pain of sin, do we not? When we sin, are we not pained? Don't we feel that pain and that, that grief and that sorrow when we sin? But Jesus had never once sinned. Jesus was the spotless lamb who came to take away the sin of the world. But in that moment on the cross, the sin of the world was laid upon him. Think about how much pain you would experience if just the pain of your sin for your life was laid on you in just one moment. It would be beyond what we could even bear. But in that moment, Christ didn't just bear my sin. He didn't just bear your sin. He bore the sin of the world. The most vile, the most evil, the most despicable, the darkest acts of sin laid on him. And in this moment, as Jesus becomes the, the object of the most wretched and heinous acts the world has ever known, in this moment, bearing the weight of sin, God made Jesus the object of his pure and blinding justice. It pleased the Lord, we read it tonight, it pleased the Lord to crush him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had prayed, let this cup pass from me. The cup that he's referring to is not the physical pain and suffering of the cross. The cup he's referring to is the cup that the prophets had prophesied about. The cup that contained the wrath of God against sin that had been stored up from the history of the world. The wrath of God is God's settled opposition against evil. When we think about wrath, we think of God's wrath like our wrath, that it's somehow uncontrolled and, and violent and, and, and out, of, out of control altogether. No, that's not God's wrath. God's wrath is not out of control. It is perfectly measured. God's wrath is his righteous judgment, the righteous penalty. And God in that moment poured out his wrath for sin upon Christ so that the apostle Paul could write, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our place. Jesus took our penalty. Jesus bore our sin. He was forsaken so that I could be accepted, so that you could be accepted by God. He was rejected by God. 
so that you and I might be embraced by the Father. He was pierced with nails so that we could be clothed with righteousness. All the depths of the love of Christ who stepped in front of the wrath of God for you and for me, who went to the cross and laid down his life for us. In this moment, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Number five, we, we turn to John chapter 19. Jesus simply said this statement, I thirst, I thirst. In this statement, I thirst, what we see is the humanity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was, yes, fully God, truly God, yet at the same time, he was fully man, truly man. And in this moment, Jesus hanging on the cross, we see his humanity, his humanity being put on display as he says, I thirst. And this is important for us because for Jesus to be our representative, he had to be human. He had to be born of a woman. He had to be born under the law. He had to be the one that God told Adam and Eve that there would be one coming born of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. The humanity of Christ. This is Christ, our representative. This is Christ, one of us, our brother, our substitute. Christ, the perfect man, tempted at every point as we are yet, the Bible says, without sin. And he goes to the cross and he offers up his life in our place for our sin. He couldn't have done that if he wasn't human. He couldn't have died on our behalf if he wasn't fully man. And as a representative of all humanity, that all who would put their faith in him would receive the righteousness that he gives. This is the righteous dying for the unrighteous. This is the just dying for the unjust. This is Christ our King dying for his enemies to reconcile us and to make us his sons and daughters. The humanity of Christ our substitute. Again in John 19, the sixth statement of Christ on the cross is, it is finished. It is finished. In this statement, we see the victory of Christ. That what he came to do, he did. The work he came is done. The sacrifice, the price, the penalty paid in full. Amen. There is not another sacrifice. There is not another price. There is nothing that we must do because Christ has done it all. The work 
finished. The work accomplished. The victory of Christ. He is the one who paid the price for sin. Which means that Jesus is the way to God. That it is only through faith in him and his finished work that we receive forgiveness, redemption, salvation, and eternal life. It is by faith in his name and his name alone that we are saved. No one else has died for us. No one else has shed their blood for us. No one else has suffered God's wrath on our behalf. It is only Christ. There is salvation in no other place and in no other name. It is only in Christ. Christ is victorious. And through death, Christ has conquered death. Through death, Christ conquered death. The work finished. Oftentimes people have the idea that that before they come to God, they have to get their life together. Listen, friends, there's no way that that is possible. It is only when we come to God with our life of sin and shame, broken, humbled before God, trusting in Him and what He has done, that then the victorious Savior, he, he begins to do a miracle in us. And just as he rose again on the third day, he begins to, to raise us up to newness of life. The work is finished. There is nothing you have to do to receive the salvation of Christ. But to trust in him, to receive it by faith, by faith. Number seven, the final statement that Jesus makes on the cross is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In this statement, we see the faith of Christ. The faith of Christ, having accomplished his work, having done what he came to do, having paid for sin, having endured the wrath of God, he he now looks to the Father in faith and says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Though for a moment he was forsaken, he knows that he is still the object of the Father's love. And do you know that love? Do you know that love that that calls us to himself, that beckons us to himself. No matter what pain you may be enduring, no matter what hardships life may bring, in it do you feel the love of the Father. A love that transcends all pain and suffering and sorrow. A love that will keep you in the midst of every trial and test. The love of God that is found only in the outstretched arms of Christ. There is no greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. God shows his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. Jesus is the one who died. Jesus is the one who paid the price for sin. Jesus is the one who promises redemption. Jesus is the one who was victorious. Jesus is the one who shows us God's love. God loves you. God cares for you. God sent his son to die for you. Will you receive his love? We receive the love of the Father as we turn to Christ in faith. We receive the love of the Father when we repent of our sin and we trust in the work of Christ. Do you know that love? I pray that you do. But if you don't know that love, there's no better time than right now than to reach out in faith and say, Jesus, I trust in you. I receive your work. I receive your salvation. I receive your cross. I receive the price, the penalty, the work that you did for me. I receive it by faith. The beautiful thing about that No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, where you're coming from, the Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on the Lord tonight and receive the work that he did for you. Would you stand with me tonight? We're going to enter into a moment of reflection, remembering the cross of Christ in a tangible way. Jesus taught us to remember him by taking of bread and wine or juice, the bread which represents his body that was broken, the juice which represents his blood that was shed. And Christ welcomes us to his table, welcomes all who would come to him in faith. His table is open tonight to all who trust in him. No matter what we have done, he died for our sin to reconcile us to the Father. And so all are welcome tonight, all who have put their faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, a love that we we can see, a a love that, that compelled you to act, compelled you to move. Lord, though we were lost, though we were blinded by the lies of the enemy, though we were dead in our sins, you have chased us, you have pursued us, you you in Christ have reconciled us to yourself. 
Lord, tonight as we partake, we remember the great price that you paid to redeem our lives. We come to the table with hearts filled of love and gratitude tonight. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.